The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. First Corinthians chapter 15, continuing in our study in this wonderful epistle, and we've been looking at 1 Corinthians 15 over the past few weeks. We continue in that study considering the description here and the teaching about being glorified in the image of Christ, beginning at verse 35. Hear God's word. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. The subject of our study this evening from our text is introduced by Paul in the words of verse 35, which is a twofold question. Up to this point in chapter 15, Paul has been speaking of the resurrection of the dead, but then in verse 35, he says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body? Do they come? Verse 12 of chapter 15 tells us that Paul has been dealing with those at Corinth who had denied bodily resurrection. That verse says, 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But now, by the time we get to verse 35, after the apostle has so effectively proved with the word of God that the dead do rise and that the resurrection to life and glory is the Christian's hope, the apostle comes to this second objection, really. How are the dead raised up? With what kind of body do they come? It's a twofold question that's really addressing the same issue. And in our passage, we read the inspired, inerrant answer to that question. I'm sure that most of us can identify with this question that was being asked. For many of us have wondered about the resurrection and the life to come. What kind of existence will this be? Will I recognize others? Will they recognize me? Scripture makes it clear that we will. When you read the last chapter of C.S. Lewis's, uh, the last book in his Chronicles of Narnia, and you see his imagination when the children go to heaven, in a sense, and they're in this beautiful creation, and they're eating fruit that tastes beyond what they'd ever imagined, that they can run without getting tired, that even those who are there and they've known on earth who were old and And now they still look mature and wise, but they're youngish. And you just think, what will all of that be like? Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher in New England, often spoke of heaven. He said, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness. Speaking of that goal to live in light of heaven and the eternal state. In The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Mark Twain portrays, on the other side of the scale, a very low view of heaven. The Christian spinster, Miss Watson, takes a dim view of Huck Finn's fun-loving spirit And according to Huck, here's this quote from Huckleberry Finn, she went on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said not by a considerable sight. I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. It's interesting, though, when it came to heaven and hell, under the weight of age, Mark Twain said in his autobiography, the burden of pain, care, misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead, pride is dead, vanity is dead, longing for release is in their place. It comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them, and they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing, where they were a mistake and a failure, and a foolishness. Sobering, isn't it, to think of that hopeless perspective. What a contrast to what Charles Spurgeon, who would have been a contemporary of Mark Twain, although he lived in Britain, said about death, to come to thee is to come home from exile, to come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of my wishes. Just 
to get us thinking about the glories of the eternal state. You and I must seek to have our minds informed by the Word of God so that like Edwards and like Spurgeon, we also live in light of the glory to come. There there might be much we would like to know about the life to come, but we can thank God that He has revealed in His Word all that we need to know, all And it is sufficient for us. And this is the attitude that we should bring to our study as we look at this text. God has revealed what we read here. And we can grow in him through it. Paul begins his answer in verse 36 with the words, You foolish person. Very strong words. A clear rebuke to those who were saying that there was no resurrection. But we must realize that Paul is not dealing with genuine doubt. Paul is dealing here with those who are overtly, publicly ridiculing the truth of God. This is not a believer struggling to understand something that's difficult to grasp and to hold by faith. It's someone who is seeking to undermine the truth of God's word. In fact, it's clear from the way Paul begins our text is that the question of verse 35 doesn't reflect the sincere question of someone who wants to know, but rather the mockery of those who think that they already do know it all and that essentially the Apostle Paul and Scripture is wrong. They're taking this idea of bodily resurrection and they're making it seem absurd. They're looking at the resurrection in merely physical terms. They might be the kind who would say, well, what about the persons, person who, who, whose remains have been burned and scattered to the wind? Or what about the child that dies in infancy? What kind of a body is that child going to have? Or maybe they set forth other kind of earthly circumstances that might seem to stretch the imagination as to how God would resurrect a body physically. And this was the line of argument, apparently, that they were using to deny the bodily resurrection. So Paul rebukes them. And what answer does he give? Well, let's see what we learn in this text about the resurrection body. First of all, we learn in the resurrection of the body, our identity continues, but with glorious transformation. In the resurrection of the body, our identity continues, but with glorious transformation. And we see this in verses 36 to 41. Here, Paul gives two illustrations. The first is in verses 36 through 38. It's the one of a seed. And when you sow it, it first dies, and then it comes to life. And what it brings forth is not the exact same thing as was the seed. He's saying here that, The illustration of a seed teaches us that death is not an obstacle to life. We we know that's a common thing. A seed falls into the ground. It essentially dies, but then it comes to life. And in fact, we could say death is a prerequisite. Death merely prepares the way for resurrection. So the fact of death shouldn't be a ground for objection. And there is also the thought implicit here that when a seed is sown and then the plant grows, there is identity, but also glorious transformation. There is identity in the sense that in the glorified 
bodies that God will give to us who belong to Christ, you will still be you. I will still be me. There is identity. There is continuity. You will be recognizable. But there will also be this glorious transformation so that the seed that falls and then a stalk of wheat comes up. How different is the wheat from the seed or an acorn from an oak tree? Would you ever guess if you hadn't seen a tree what was going to come out of a seed? I think it's along those lines that Paul is teaching us that although we can know some things about the glorified body, it will be amazing when we finally experience it. The prototype of the resurrected body is Jesus' resurrected body. And you see these same elements of identity and yet glorious transformation. Jesus was still Jesus. In fact, he still had the nail prints. He still had the wound. He still uh, was a male. He was still recognizable, although there was a glorious transformation. He could walk through walls. He could come and go. There was, it was this amazing transformation. And so we're given a glimpse of what our glorified bodies will be like. And then the second illustration that teaches these themes is in verses 39 and 40, where he talks about the fact that all flesh is, all, is not all the same. There is a kind for humans, one for animals, birds, and he talks about the heavenly bodies and the different types of glory, the sun, the moon, the stars, even stars differing from one another in glory, the diversity of created things. It emphasizes the point of transformation. Our glorified bodies will be vastly different from our present bodies, which are subject to mortality and sin. Notice in verse 38, Paul emphasizes the power of God. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. The problem at the root of this question that people at Corinth were disturbing the church with was a failure to comprehend the mighty power of God. They stumbled over the doctrine of bodily resurrection because they thought only in human terms, in mere physical terms. They were like the Sadducees who at one point, and we know that the Sadducees denied the bodily resurrection. At one point when the Sadducees came to Jesus with their question about the seven brothers who had all been husbands of the same wife in turn, and each one had died and the next one had taken her as his wife, and Jesus rebukes their whole outlook. He said, do you not therefore err because you do not know the scriptures neither the power of God. They didn't understand the power of God. How are the dead raised up? They're raised up by the infinite power of God. And to to question that and to think it's insufficient, that that cannot be done, you're really questioning the power of God himself. The second thing we find about the glorified body is that the glorified body will be imperishable. We see this in verses 42 through 44 with this series of contrasts that Paul gives us. Four different contrasts. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. There's the first one. 
It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Just think of each of these. The first one is that what is sown is perishable, but what is raised up is imperishable. It is no longer subject to decay and disease and death, which is every man's lot in this present life. And then also this contrast of dishonor and glory. What does Paul have in mind here? How is this present body of the believer a body of dishonor? And and really, you only need to think of creation in that sense. Man and woman created in the image of God, above all the rest of creation, given the capacity to manifest God in a sense, to glorify God, but sin brought, sadly, dishonor. We know that. Sin has marred our ability to glorify God and reflect his image in this world. And this dishonor is seen no more clearly than in death, in the grave. Death is the ultimate dishonoring of the glory of God. It was not part of God's original good creation. But the resurrection body will be one of glory. It will bring the full manifestation of the sons of God. We will be able to glorify God fully with all of our capacity as God originally intended it to be. And then there's this third comparison. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. In this present body, we know we are weak. Don't we feel that? I didn't want to lead the hymn sing because I'm getting weaker as I age here. My voice starts to go out and I can't stand that long. My back gets sore. I was comforted by the fact that I read the other week that Jonathan Edwards didn't even sing hymns in the public worship service of his congregation because he had to save his voice to preach. He loved hymns. He loved music. He often sang hymns at other times, but he didn't sing then. Of course, his sermons were probably close to two hours long, so you can understand why that would be. I guess I don't really have the same excuse. But it is sown in weakness and will be raised in power. Think of the, the news that we hear. You know, week in, week out, we get news story. Of course, the, fame, the news last night of the Justice Anthony Scalia dying, and you think, the strongest person on the earth, the richest people on the earth, the most powerful people on the earth. World Magazine at the end of every year prints a couple pages worth of kind of people that were famous in one way, maybe famous in the Christian community, maybe in a secular way. And you just read about all these deaths, page after page. And every year, the pages are just full. You think, oh, that person died. How old was he? How old was she? It comes to the most powerful, the most politically powerful, the biggest celebrities, because we are weak. We cannot fight death. But it is raised up in power. And then this final contrast, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. A spiritual body does not mean a body purely composed of spirit, like a ghost. It doesn't even speak of a disembodied state. We speak of the intermediate state when Christians die before the return of Christ, and they go to be with the Lord, and their soul or their spirit is with the Lord. And we don't 
understand fully how that is, but we know that they await the resurrection when all the saints of every time and place will be bodily resurrected. So he's talking about this time after the intermediate state. He's talking about the bodily resurrection from the dead. He's not speaking about this period of time, this temporary time when we are not resurrected bodily. The spiritual body rather means a body which expresses spirit, which answers the need of spirit. You might paraphrase it this way. A natural body is a body suited to this present life. A spiritual body is a body suited to the life to come. In other words, these bodies we have now are not suited to heavenly existence. They must be transformed to dwell in the presence of God. Jesus speaks of this same thing as he addresses the Sadducees who raise this question about bodily resurrection. And this is in Luke 20. And he says, They which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels. People wonder what that means. It doesn't mean that we will be angels. No, we'll be glorified human beings, but it's an existence like the angels in some sense. And he goes on, and our sons of God being sons of the resurrection, our glorified bodies will be suited to this glorious eternal state in which we will rejoice forever. Jesus' point is not that we'll be identical to the angels, but that we'll be equal to the angels in eternality and holiness and things like that. This is what we have to look forward to as believers. Not only life in heaven, but also glorified bodies suited to that life. How glorious that existence will be. I think of swimming in a lake or in the ocean, and you can dive down a little bit, but you'd need scuba gear and everything to really go down and exist there for any length. But even then, you couldn't stay down there for long. If you were going to live on the bottom of the ocean like certain fish do, you'd have to have a body perfectly suited to living underwater like that. Maybe that's an analogy that falls short, but how glorious that heavenly existence will be. And then to bring home the imperishable nature of this body, Paul shows a comparison of Adam and Christ. Look especially at verses 45 to 49. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And he goes on to make comparisons, contrasting Adam and Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that there's a vast dif- difference between the first man, Adam, and the last man, Christ. Adam had a perfect body, unlike ours, but it wasn't a body suited for the eternal state. We must assume that apparently this would have been given to him had Adam successfully passed this probation period in the garden. We're not sure what would have happened. Possibly this transformation had to do with eating of the tree of life as well. For after Adam's sin, we read that the Lord banished him from the garden. 
quote, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Genesis 3.22. So Adam possessed only a natural body, but one without sin, one without corruption, but Christ at his resurrection was made a life-giving spirit. He is both the pattern for us and he is the source of glorified, resurrection, bodily existence in the eternal state. It's like the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 2. We know that when he appears, when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What is, what is the point of all of this? It's that the fact that both Adam and Jesus Christ are patterns. Every single person on this earth has borne and continues to bear the image of the first man, Adam, the image of the earthly. But the glorious hope of Christians is that by God's power, and we know by the work of Christ, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. I love the way Paul's paragraph concludes, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust. How worse can it be to be bearing the image of the man of dust? we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The final outcome is not in doubt. Well, let's draw a few applications as we close. One, we should learn that from this text that God is on the throne and that he directs all things according to his infinitely wise and holy plan. God is on the throne. There is nothing uncertain about his plan for those who belong to him. He has made provision to glorify us bodily. And God's purposes for all of us are ripening fast, as the hymn says. He is working all things according to the counsel of his own will. And so in the darkest hours of your life, you can learn to cast yourself on the Lord and to trust wholeheartedly in him. And even when you pass through the valley of the shadow of death, know that there stands a resurrection to eternal life and glory at the other end. This is the Lord's doing. It is the work of his hand, and it should move us to praise his name. Thanks be to God. But secondly, we should also learn something about the sanctity of the body. We speak about the sanctity of life, and rightly so. The body in which we live is one day going to be fully redeemed. This body is going to be transformed for eternal habitation. And it's interesting the way Romans 8, 23 and 24 talk about this. There Paul writes, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. He's talking about the groaning of all creation, the brokenness of this world. And he says, Christians who have the down payment of the Holy Spirit, we have the Spirit dwelling in us. Even so, yet, even as we have the Spirit and look forward, we groan, longing for this full redemption. One day our bodies are going to be fully glorified. We could say fully redeemed. And that says something about how we live and treat 
our bodies in this present life, how we use our minds, how we use our hands and our tongues and our feet. Do we use them in light of the fact that they are to stand in a future day before God? Yes, vastly transformed from seed to plant or tree, and yet with continuity. Part of what Paul was correcting at Corinth was this Greek dualistic philosophy of the immortality of the soul, which really led in that society to a complete disregard for the body itself. You could indulge in the most degrading form of sensual pleasure. And what did it matter? Your body was disposable because the idea that body was just nothing compared to soul or spirit. Or you could go to the other extreme and misuse the body with asceticism, with Uh, You could starve your body or try to beat the evil out of your body in some way. And both of these extremes were seen as appropriate in that philosophical society because the body was viewed only as the evil prison house for the soul. And it was seen as lasting only in this life. Do you see how different the biblical view is from that dualistic Greek view. The biblical view teaches the sanctity of the body. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and it will one day manifest the glory of God for all eternity. Praise be to God. It says something about how we should live now. That relates to our third application. This teaching about future glorification in the image of Jesus Christ should spur us on to glorify Jesus Christ now. The prospect of being raised imperishable, being raised in glory, in power, the prospect for you and for me, which may seem like just a dream of being raised no longer susceptible to sin, no longer sinning, no longer in any way wanting something that's wrong or not according to the will of God. That's the hope for which you and I wait And we have to say, is that the hope that's reflected in the way we live our life this week? I like the way 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 speak about this. Paul says, rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, and this is the time of the year that all the gyms around the area are totally full, right? Because everyone's still in their New Year's resolution phase and their, their bodies are being strengthened by the exercise they're doing and Paul is not discounting that and saying it's bad. He's just saying, while bodily training is of some value, he goes on, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. When we think about being glorified and dwelling with the Lord forever, that's a motivation to us to live for Jesus Christ now, to speak for Jesus Christ now, to long and pray and fight and war and trust Jesus Christ to transform us more now. It's something that has value for the life to come. The final application I'd like to draw concerns those who may be here who don't really know this hope or maybe have not come to trust in Christ. Maybe you know something about the gospel. Maybe you've heard it. You know what scripture says about Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's important to remember that Jesus speaks clearly that there are two resurrections, two types. 
In John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29, Jesus is speaking and he says, Truly an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So he's talking about the resurrection, judgment day when he returns. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And then later on he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And now here is the description of these two resurrections. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It's a very sobering thing to think about. And our prayer is that everyone who hears these words who is thinking about this tonight with us, would truly trust in Jesus Christ. There is going to be a resurrection to judgment, and we do not want to be part of that. We want to be part of the resurrection to life, to glory, to eternal dwelling with the living God. The only way to enter into life, the only way to be certain that you will be in that judgment to life is through faith in Jesus Christ, to trust in him, to give him your life, to turn from your sins, to believe the gospel about his death, his resurrection, and the fact that he calls you into fellowship with himself. If you haven't sought him, may you come to him this evening. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this amazing picture of eternal glory We know that we are very earthly-minded. We pray that you would help us to have our minds set not on things of this earth so much, but on things of heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Help us to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So help us this week even to live in light of what we have understood from this text that you might be glorified. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.